we use the word metanoia a lot, you know, in uh, um, religious uh, circles anyway. Metanoia is a, a word used to usually to speak about a conversion experience, you know, a change of mind and heart. And that changing the mind is, uh, is a lot, you know, it, you have to change all your categories, the way you think, the way you approach problems, the way you approach other people. Uh, and you have to keep it going. You have to keep it alive. Uh, and that is the great problem that we face with people who have uh, numinous experiences. Can they keep it alive and how? Welcome to episode 30 of the Mind That Ego podcast. I'm Ricky Duriz, and in this episode, I'm joined by Jungian analyst and acclaimed author, Dr. Murray Stein, to discuss Jung's Map of the Soul. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich. He is a training analyst at the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland. His publications include The Principle of Individuation, Young's Map of the Soul, and Analytical Psychology and Religion. He lectures internationally on topics related to analytical psychology and its applications in the contemporary world. It was a pleasure to talk to Dr. Stein, whose expertise and insight provided a reliable base to journey into the richness of Jung's body of work. Our dialogue includes discussions on the numinous, the nature of the shadow, the ego's role in transformation, how dreams guide us to wholeness, and the life-affirming experience of synchronicity. So Murray, welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. Um, I'm delighted that, that you can join me today. I wanted for us to look at the expansive topic of, of Jung's work, essentially. I'm trying to find an entry point into that. I've just finished your, your book, Jung's Map of the Soul. And rather than attempt to kind of <laughs> transfer that, that into this discussion, I'd like to introduce a point of departure around the numinous, um, beginning with a quote from Jung. And, and it's actually a quote that I'd intended to use for our conversation uh, before I actually found one of your articles that, that use the same quote. So I, I'll take that as a good sign, at least. <laughs> and the quote from I Young is... Yes, yes. What, what was that? Sorry. I think I know the quote that you're going to use. But yeah? On. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the quote is, the main interest of my work is not concerned with the treatment of, the, of neuroses, but rather with the approach to the numinous. But the fact is that the approach to the numinous is the real therapy. And in as much as you attain to the numinous experiences, you are released from the curse of pathology. Even the very disease takes on a numinous character. Was that the quote? Yes. That's it. Yes. Yeah, excellent. A late letter that Jung wrote to someone who asked him about his uh, therapy methods and so on. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a famous it's a famous quote, often used by Jungian writers. Anyway, um, um, and I did write about it. Uh, actually, Anne Casement, who's an analyst in London put together a book uh, on the numinous number of years ago with maybe 20 essays by various Jungian authors. And uh, I contributed to that. Um, and the question I asked, is the numinous enough? Uh, is the numinous experience enough? Because many people have numinous experiences, but they still remain quite neurotic and un... un uh, say untransformed um it's a little bit like you know the um, uh, what's coming back into fashion now is using psychedelics to make a breakthrough into the unconscious so you see uh something you see you see the world in a different way 
that shows the interconnectedness of everything that is and so on. And then you come back from that experience, having had it, and you remember it for a while. Um, uh, the question is, uh, does it um, make a difference in your life uh, permanently or in the long term? Or is it simply an episodic event that, like others, uh, you might remember, but you, um, you don't use uh, particularly for further um, uh, what we call individuation. And that's, that's what I focused my, um, my essay on. Um, it isn't just having that numinous experience, which of course is the starting point, but it's what you do with it, how you use it to um, make a difference in your life. And that is a lot of work. That's what the alchemist called an opus which means uh, a long, concentrated uh, effort to um, plumb the depths of the meaning that this experience might have for you. Um, I had a colleague, he's passed away a few years ago, um, Nathan Schwartz-Salant was his name, he wrote. His last book, I think, was called The Order Disorder Paradox, or The Disorder Order Paradox, and it's about entropy and negentropy has a scientific background. He starts his book by telling a story that um, uh, of his um, um, conversion, so to speak, from science to uh, Jungian psychology. He was at um, Berkeley University working on his PhD in electrical engineering or um, yeah, some, some, something in that area very mathematical, very, very hardcore science. Um, but he was getting burned out and he didn't think this was going to sustain him in life and he didn't know what to do. And one day a friend of his gave him a, um, a dose of LSD. Just let's try this, you know, it was, I guess the 60s or 70s. Oh, this was quite early. It would have been in the early mid 60s. Um, and, you know, he thought, well, can't hurt, try it, didn't have many expectations, and it totally changed him. He said he saw the light in that experience, the light, and he said for the rest of his life, that light stayed with him, mm -hmm. and it led him to a totally different, uh, um, into a totally different direction. He'd never heard of Jungian psychology, but he ended up by chance, what we call synchronicity, uh, in Zurich, and he trained to become a Jungian analyst and became very well known as a, a Jungian theoretician and practitioner in New York City. So he did something with it. He stayed with it. It kept on feeding him. He said it gave him the ability to read other people's uh, emotional life. He could see into them in a way that he hadn't been able to before. Mm -hmm gave them a kind of empathic vision into what was going on in the background of their psyches. And that's what made him almost a, a kind of magician uh, in an, uh, as, an, as an analyst. Mm. And um, of course, there's the famous case of St. Paul on the road to Damascus, who has a numinous experience that changes his life and uh, hears a voice and has a vision of Christ and and then he spends three years after that in the desert trying to figure out what does it mm -hmm. mean. And he comes back from that opus, that working it out in his mind, um, and um, you know, becomes the famous St. Paul that we know, the, the great missionary to the Gentiles. He carried the, the um, message of this little Jewish sect in Jerusalem to the Greek world and to Rome eventually. So it was um, it was an experience that changed his life like it did Nathan's. But it does take work. Uh, you've got to work out what does it mean? We use the word metanoia a lot, you know, in uh, um, religious uh, circles anyway. Metanoia is a, a word used to usually to speak about a conversion experience, you know, a change 
of mind and heart. And that changing the mind is, is a lot, you know, it, you have to change all your categories, the way mm -hmm. you think, the way you approach problems, the way you approach other people. Um, and you have to keep it going. You have to keep it alive. Uh, and that is the great problem that we face with people who have um, numinous experiences. Can they keep it alive and how? We have methods to try to do that in Jungian work, uh, but you have to want to do it. You have to apply yourself. I don't know if you can notice the, the big smile on my face when you said metanoia. Um, <laughs> I'm actually working on a talk at the moment with that as the title, um, exploring essentially my own experiences with, with depression, but also more extreme states like psychosis and how that led to my own kind of numinous experiences and, and ongoing transformation, certainly not a, an end destination. This, this is such a rich topic because I feel that, you know, a, a very common phrase used currently in spiritual circles, which is spiritual bypassing, like the idea of negating the, the, the difficult stuff. Um, and at the same time, you know, rhetoric around this idea of non-duality or awareness or connecting to, to the true self as somehow, and, and it is a misconception, but somehow offering an escape from that opus, from that work, um, from, I like the way you describe it in the book. It, it's, um, you know, it's hard work. There's pressure. There's a tension of opposites that there, there's a, a, a molding in into transformation that is is overlooked at least I find in certain more secular spiritual groups, contrasted to perhaps some dogmatic religious groups that take the life out of the numinous experience as well. <laughs> um, so I like yeah I like that. The dogmas can kill the numinous experience because. They convert it into doctrines and concepts, mm. the numinous experience, uh, to stay alive as a, um, uh, uh, what Jung calls a living symbol. Um, it, it can eventually uh, yield up ideas and, and theories and, and, and uh, hypotheses, but um, the core of it has to stay alive as a living symbol that continues to uh, uh, capture your um, your full attention and your your love and your passion. Uh, concepts don't don't really do that. You can throw concepts off, but you mm -hmm. have to come back to that uh, to that core. Um, and that's what we use uh, active imagination for in you know, our meditation. It's a type of meditation. You go back to it and you continue working with it. And you don't simply turn it into ideas. And uh, then it becomes what Jung called a sign or a, a dead symbol. You take the life out of the symbol. Mm. You have something, you have some ideas and concepts, but you really need both. And, and again, if you look at Paul, he had lots of ideas. He was a great theologian, but he always comes back to the core thing, which um, speaks of his relation to Christ, you know, which he discovered on the road. And, and he had to keep that alive in prayer, whatever he did, uh, to um, continue the uh, uh, the flow of libido, as we say, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, coming into that, um, uh, into and out of that uh, symbol. Yeah. I, it also, two things come to mind. One is, is alchemy in terms of the potential for, for the, I mean, there, there's a lot of misconception around like the notion of ego, which may maybe it'd be useful to clear up. But but this idea of the ego's potential to become very rigid, 
and to to kind of recrystallize um i think young calls it like the negative restoration of the persona almost like you have a potential of a, a transformative experience and then almost like a choice point between do i allow this to to shake and reverberate through my my kind of idea of myself or do i fall back on my previous image and and not integrate it um you know talking talking from my experiences of this i i've i've found conflict between like a lot of modern spirituality and this idea of like being beyond the ego being beyond the the small self and transcending duality and at the same time one of the reasons that i i was really drawn to the union approach is that it looks at duality in a, in a way that as you say it still has that libido it still has that energy it has that liveliness but there's a humility to the the surrender of duality in terms of surrendering to those symbols as something that exists outside of conscious awareness and for me that's when i that's when i feel most alive like it's not necessarily connected to uh, you know pure consciousness in in meditation it is that that dance of, of duality um that's not a question but kind of riffing off <laughs> what you say but could you perhaps talk to the ego in Jungian terms uh, uh, and like ego consciousness yeah, you know, and its role in, in in transformation yeah i think is a is a terrible mistake uh, you cannot bypass uh, your problems. You have to face your problems. Uh, Jung says somewhere else, most of our problems are insoluble. We we outgrow them. But we don't bypass them. You live them. You live them fully. If you try to bypass it, it just increases the shadow. You know, the ego um, is... Um, it's a great gift of humanity. If you think what makes the difference between between the wonderful animals that surround us uh, in nature and the human being, it is a type of self-reflective consciousness that we call ego. Ego is the center of consciousness. It's when, when you look in the mirror and you say, I am, I know that I am, I see myself, or you reflect on yourself. Um, this self-reflective ability is as far as we know, unique in the universe. And maybe it's out there, who knows, somewhere else probably is. But as far as we know, for sure, uh, human beings have it. And uh, it seems like other animals don't have it to the extent that we have. It's the reason we can make culture. It's the reason we can create uh, beautiful art and buildings. Mm -hmm. it, it all comes out of this capacity for reflection and creativity. Um, uh, the ego is a is a, a center of consciousness that can use energy for particular purposes, okay, can direct it. The problem with the ego is that it is blind to what it's blind to. In other words, it's, it's such a bright light that it doesn't see um, uh, certain things that it leaves out. You know, if you have, uh, if you're in, the, in, in a dark forest and you have a bright flashlight and you shine it uh, to see is there an animal over there or there's a bird up there uh, you might see that thing but you don't see everything else around it and that very light blinds you to the other things <laughs> you become more blind to the other things because mm -hmm. you see one thing so clearly uh, and that creates the problem what we call uh, the shadow and the shadow of the ego, uh, if you push down far enough into it, uh, it's a moral problem, among other things. It's the problem we all have that we overlook our own faults and we find them in other people, okay? We project the shadow onto other people. So we shine the light into the wrong place. Um, in, in war, uh, especially when war is going on now, uh, each side sees the uh, evil in the other side. Mm. Uh, if you stand on one side and you look over there, you see the evil in them. If you stand on their side and you look this way, you see the evil over here. 
neither side in war, maybe they can't afford it, looks for the shadow within. You know, how did we contribute to this? What is our part in this? Um, that is just taboo. Okay. Mm. And in normal life, it's it's also fairly taboo. You don't want to see that. And you don't want to see that a lot of your plans and um, and motivations have to do with advancing your own rather narrow self-interest, your narcissistic gratifications. You want to be the center of attention. You want to control things. You want to be in charge. And if you go to the bottom of that ego shadow, you find something very cold. I write about this in the shadow chapter of my mm -hmm. book. Um, it's a cold, unempathic, uncaring, um, maybe it serves survival of the, of the individual. Um, but it can, if that takes over, you get the psychopath who will do anything without uh, a sense of conscience, conscience or empathy. Uh, simply to gratify himself, no matter what it is, um, torturing animals or raping um, people or, mm. you know, it just doesn't faze them. Uh, and it's cold-blooded. If you go to Dante's version of hell uh, in his great Inferno, uh, when, uh, when uh, Dante and Virgil descend to the bottom, they find... Satan there, frozen in ice. From the waist down, it's ice. He has three heads, each is filled with a, you know, each mouth is, is devouring somebody. Um, but at, below the, the, the waist, it's ice, he's frozen. And that uh, uh, coldness is uh, when you when you when you see that in somebody, it sends shivers through you. That's evil, mm. and it's connected to the ego. It isn't the ego itself. The ego can be released from it, but if it's unconscious and is just projecting shadow, then it's also being controlled by this evil power, uh, you know, without knowing it. Mm -hmm. um, so. The idea of getting rid of the ego is not in Jungian psychology at all. We need the ego. We need the ego to function in a responsible way in the world. And people who try to bypass, you know, jump over the ego and go into the non-dual state and don't do that work, sometimes commit the most atrocious acts without thinking twice about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're beyond good and evil. Yeah. I think, you know, ethics don't matter. Uh, mm -hmm. Other people don't matter, whatever, you know, I'm, and they wouldn't say, I want, you know, whatever happens is fine with me. Yeah. Uh, and so they, um, there are many stories about that. I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but that's the, the consequence of bypassing, not to do the shadow work. And so um, um, people who are um, very interested in, in uh, you know, pursuing the non-dual states uh, should combine that with, or maybe precede it even, by looking carefully at themselves in a kind of Freudian analysis, if you will, or mm -hmm. a reductive analysis, uh, where you begin to see your complicity and what's going on in the world around you, your responsibility, your part, uh, you look at it in the face and you work with it. Even if you can't solve it, fall back into the complexes over and over again, as we say, mm -hmm. and young circles. Um, but uh, you become increasingly um, aware of it. And when you do, you can step out of it more quickly and you can make amends. You can do something uh, to repair the damage that you've done because you realize uh, that you've been complicit. That's called tikkun olam in Jewish circles, you know, repairing the world that you've damaged. Mm. <laughs> um, so um, that's so important uh, 
in this discussion about the numinous. The numinous is really important, but it isn't everything. Mm. Uh, as far as um, becoming whole, a whole human being and, and a responsible human being. Yes, it's almost like that, uh, the idea of like William Blake's marriage of heaven and hell. It's like, if you're going to reach for the divine, be aware of <laughs> what yes. is in the trenches of the psyche as well. Um, yeah. Something that, that comes to mind, and I, I'd love to third person this and, and say for people listening, but it's also from myself is, I, I, you know, there can be a resistance to or an indulgence in the idea of evil so in terms of self-trust and the act of becoming this fear that below the surface i'm inherently there's something inherently i should be ashamed of i'm inherently dangerous i'm all all the, the beliefs that can come from from the shadow what would you say to someone who was looking to approach inner work and yet felt that almost that that trembling fear towards well if i if i do that i'm just going to realize that i'm evil <laughs> i'm going to realize that actually i'm i'm worse than even my ego allows me to believe what would you say to someone not me obviously <laughs> that that had that reservation and instead chose to ignore it completely well, people who are uh, kind of uh, absorbed in their um, in their guilt and and uh, shame issues, uh, you know, it's very depressing to think about yourself that way. And so, um, what what we do in in Jungian psychology is we we don't try to talk you out of it. Um, uh, we say. Um, well, let's let's look at the whole picture. How how can we get the whole picture of who you are? Um, that might be a part of you, but what else is there? And so we start looking at the strengths. You know, what are what are the virtues? Yeah, there are the seven deadly sins and the vices. We all have that. We're all born in sin, and you know we can grant that reality. But what what else is there in your life? And then also let's look at your dreams. And uh, I've written a a, um, short paper some years ago about the faith of the analyst. What is the faith of the analyst? And um, as as Jungians, the faith uh, is that the psyche knows what it needs and um, how to provide what it needs Mm. if we let it do that, okay? We have faith in the psyche. So um, to um, actualize that, we say, well, let's look at your dreams. And we believe, this is what Jung taught, at least, and it's, you know, uh, from many years of experience now, that the, that, that, that the dream life offers what Jung called compensations to the conscious state. So if the con- conscious state is very dark and depressed, and a person is able to dream and remember dreams, which isn't always the case, but if they are, you'll start seeing some light. You'll start mm-hmm. seeing what the person has and doesn't realize they have because it's blocked, locked away in the unconscious. And the dreams will begin to uh, show the other side. So if it's very dark on the side of consciousness, you might get brilliant light on the side of the unconscious uh, in a a dream or a vision. Um, So this idea of compensation um, works toward um, a, a, um, what Jung called a prospective movement of the psyche toward wholeness. If the ego consciousness becomes one-sided, as we all do naturally in the course of our education and development and growing up in cultures and so on, it becomes one-sided in favor of certain values and certain ideas and functions and attitudes. Um, the uh, unconscious will compensate that so as to create, in this dialectic, 
a movement toward a greater sense of self. So it isn't locked into a, a small, confined, shameful area, mm. but it can include that area in the mandala. The mandala is a, a classic um, symbol or image of the wholeness of the self. And the dark has a place like yin and yang, you know? Mm-hmm. Yang is light and yin is dark. One is the north side of the mountain, others the south side of the mountain. One is masculine, one is feminine. These opposites all exist within the self. And um, uh, over time, um, one gets a sense of um, the, um, the greater self that includes uh, our moods, our feelings, our um, one-sided ego attitudes, our upbringing, all of that is included. It's not thrown away, but it's balanced by other factors that uh, relativize it. I've worked with people over long periods of time in analysis who grow up with this feeling that I am I am bad, mm. I am evil, I am wicked. They get it from uh, a religious context often. Um, you know that that overdoes it um, in order to con- what is it to um, convict people of their sins so that they will have mm. a rebirth experience and so on. And sometimes that works, but sometimes people are just left with this residue of terrible feeling about themselves, and they can't feel good about themselves. And this is a terrific problem throughout life. They carry that message with them uh, into their adulthood and old age and have to continue struggling with it. Um, But it can be offset or outgrown to a certain extent by other experiences. So the man I'm thinking of in particular who had that experience uh, as a child, grew up with it, uh, in his later years, and in a not old, old age, but later age, um, had an experience of a vision of Christ who came to him, mm-hmm. uh, actually, and they became friends. They became mm-hmm. brothers. And it was a, he had it on an Easter morning, which was synchronistic. And, uh, and now he's got that to live with, uh, as to, to counterbalance the message that he got from his very well-meaning Christian community, trying to scare him into some kind of experience, but it came in a very different way. And it offsets that feeling of shame and sinfulness. We all have that. We all make mistakes. We all do things that, in retrospect, we wish we hadn't. Um, and um, that has to be offset by grace, you know, by which is the good part of the, the gospel. Not only that you're mm. born a sinner, but that you're saved by grace. Yeah. And that doesn't be emphasized enough sometimes in the certain religious circles. So yeah, yeah uh, that that the that the unconscious will compensate, and that the self wants to manifest in its fullness. Uh, that's our faith as Jungian analysts. Here's this idea as as well of like the, and uh, I, I could be getting mixed up in terms of I know they're not they're loose categories or, or the map is is not uh, rigid with with young young but this idea of the the golden shadow as well. Like if you're willing to confront the shadow and embrace it as a smaller part of a greater grand scheme of the self through embracing that you enter unconscious territory and within that unconscious territory, they're also potentially your greatest gifts as well. Part of that compensation is like seeing that the, the fullness of the territory, um, I, I also I, I like that you share that like the faith of being an analyst. Obviously, I'm, I'm not an analyst, but I get get a lot from Jungian. Um, not only the the theory of it, but practices within myself. And a big part of that has been um, I actually wrote an article around this, like the 
the poetry of the psyche there's a dimension mm -hmm. beyond like just the rational and the, the cognitive that is it, it doesn't operate in a linear fashion it doesn't operate cause and effect is to be interpreted and not known almost and for me having that shift in perspective was like well wait a minute there there's a like you say the word grace there's a grace and an elegance to the process even in the darkest aspects of myself there is light there's that yin and yang but the entire process can be one there's not so much like oh i am this type of person and i'm looking at myself but like why wow, there's this entire inner cosmos to experience and there's just a sense of all towards its nature towards the the patterns and and its relationship um and i'm i'm aware i'm aware we don't have so long so i want to kind of take it from that idea right. of, of the mandala of the self the the organizing principle the the poetry of the psyche and to shift from not only the, the kind of inner experience but when the boundaries of the psyche merge into to the external through synchronicity so this kind of overlap of mind and matter could you talk to, to synchronicity as an experience but also as a process of transformation and how it can can support transformation yeah Jung's uh concept Jung came up with this um term synchronicity and developed a, a theory that he wanted to see included in our in our conceptual understanding of of reality okay um within the the rational scientific framework you have the material world and the cause and effect um every effect has a cause and so when you have a symptom for instance you ask what is the cause of the symptom and you try to treat the cause so as to deal with the symptom you don't just deal with the symptom so you trace back to causation using the idea that uh, you know it's more or less like um the uh, the billiard game you know one ball hits the other hits the other hits the other and you have a string of causal effect um but Jung thought that that doesn't explain the mystery of what we experience in life, actually. Um, there are certain events that um, are accidental. Uh, you have different lines of causation suddenly meeting uh, in a way that brings about a change, okay? A change in attitude. Uh, significant change in, in, in your life and probably the most significant moments and decisions in your life come out of these so-called accidental experiences okay so Jung coined this term synchronicity meaning at the same time there is a meeting between psyche and matter between inner and outer between something you need maybe you don't even know you need it and something that comes to you and the two match up in such a way that they produce a whole new flow, a whole new direction in life. And so included in the definition of synchronicity is not only a causal you know, coincidence, but meaning. He said it's a meaningful coincidence. And that meaning uh, uh, the source of that meaning is not situated in our um, uh, ego consciousness, uh, nor is it the product of interpretation. It's delivered. Mm. We don't make meaning. Here he separates himself from the existentialists, which they say you have to make you make all your meaning. He said in synchronicity, meaning is delivered from somewhere else where where does it come from uh, that's that's the mystery so um you can theorize about that uh, um there is now uh, quite a lot of discussion around this uh, 
what's called a dual aspect monism. Um, a book has been written about it, and um, there's a man in Zurich who's a physicist and a philosopher named Harold Utmanspacher, who, um, with a colleague of his, wrote a book called Dual Aspect Monism. So the idea is that there is a, a monad, uh, an unknown uh, something, uh, think of it as a, a box or an algorithm or something, in the background that spontaneously manifests itself in two dimensions. One is a psychological mm -hmm. dimension and the other is a material dimension or outer inner dimension and an outer dimension. And when this happens, the, the source of the meaning is in that monad. There's something there that um, is um, uh, looking for a new creative development. Mm. That's the theory, okay? So let me give you an example. One day, uh, a man came into... Uh, a, it was a woman. A woman came into my office. I, was, I lived in Chicago at the time. She told me this story. She said she was on an airplane from New York to Chicago, and she sat beside a man she didn't know, never met before, and they struck up a conversation, and he was going on to Los Angeles. So they stopped in Chicago. She got off, and he went on. And they had a very nice conversation. They had a drink together. There were some sparks, you know, and when they... Uh, uh, part of they said, oh, let's stay in touch, um, exchange telephone numbers and addresses. But she didn't didn't hear from him for a couple of months, so forgot about it more or less. And then she got uh, a message in the mail. He sent her um, a check that had been uh, uh, it was a, a payment of a dividend from some company that both he and she owned stock in. Hmm. let's say, uh, General Motors. And he received his check, and tucked behind his check by accident was her check. So he yeah. kindly sent her her check with a, with a nice note. So they resumed their relationship, and six months later, they got married. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> How did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> she would say, it must be destiny. Yeah. When you have the experience of synchronicity leading to something significant like that, you think, this is destiny. This was meant to be. Where did this come from? My experience of discovering Jung, Jungian psychology was like that. I was at a party uh, in Washington, D.C. in 1968, and we were discussing the Vietnam War. And somebody at the party said, oh, about warfare, you really should just uh, read Jung on projection, shadow projection. So I went to the bookstore the next day and asked if they had any books by Jung, and they only had one, and that was his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Mm. So I took it home, I started reading, I'm still reading it. It changed my life. That moment um, set me on a course that led me to Zurich, to a whole career that I, I didn't know existed. Mm. I might have discovered it another way. But I looked at that moment as a, a moment of synchronicity where I was looking for something. I knew I wasn't quite on the right track with what I was doing and studying. I needed something else. Didn't know what. Mm. Into my lap falls this wonderful book, A Creation of Genius by Anneli Afe, who wove all the pieces together. And um, <clears throat> to this day, I refer to that book. I still read it. I've taught it many times. Uh, it, so these these moments of meaning, I call them, uh, where inner and outer meet together in such a significant way. Uh, and when you look back on it, you see that was meant to be. Mm -hmm. That's what you mean by synchronicity, I think. Yeah. Um, Meaning is delivered. You don't know what it is at the time. You discover it later, looking back. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and the thing to do with it when you have these experiences, I, I advise people, is um, just keep taking the next step and see where it leads. 
this has happened. What does that lead you to? What does that lead you to? Yeah. And the path opens up um, um, that you would have never known existed. Um, but you, you continue following. Uh, when when um, I had that experience of reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, I came back to school. I was at Yale Divinity School at the time. And the first person I met when I walked into the campus was a professor that I had vaguely known before. His name was Becker. He was a professor of pastoral psychology. So we greeted each other and he asked me what I'd been doing. I asked him what he'd been doing. He had just been to Zurich at the Jung Institute. Mm -hmm. I didn't know such a place existed. The first guy I met when I came back. So I went yeah. into therapy with him. He worked <laughs> on my dreams. And, you know, everything started opening up. Yeah. I, it was just totally um, wizardry. Mm. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who have those kinds of experiences. Uh, if you pay attention to the synchronicity and just take it another step and follow the next one, the next one, doors start opening and other doors start closing that you thought would mm. open and kind of follow the path. <clears throat> so you the might. idea is that there is a destiny. Mm. We have this little monad in us I think of it that way, that sends out signals from time to time. Um, we call it the self. Uh, what is the source of the synchronicity? You would say, well, the self. Um, uh, it can manifest itself physically. It can manifest itself psychologically. We know about psychosomatic illness. Mm. Uh, we know about healing, psychological healing, and so on. There, there are these... Uh, phenomena that we um, interpret um, using this concept of the self as being in charge of our destiny and giving giving our lives meaning mm. you know, that isn't accidental that you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. We're doing it because we were led to do this. Mm. Yeah, and, and every step of your illustrious careers it's led to the mind that you go podcast so that <laughs> must be for something <laughs> um but i i really yeah this i resonate so much with, with what you're sharing and also like the call for humility i feel that you know this this modern idea of individualism and, and like self-development can be really like you're the one in control i don't want to go into to a rabbit hole of like free will. We, we don't have the time for that, but there is something around like what you say that there's an inherent meaning that has some kind of enigma to it, some enticing quality that, that is leading the path. I, I actually, I had a dream last night that I was um, walking through the dark and like my dad had come to meet me. I was, I'm, I live in Berlin. I was in Bristol and we I, he met me and, and we were walking through the dark and I, I couldn't tell where I was and the only reason I knew he knew how to orientate where we were is that he just pressed the um he, he got his keys out of his pocket and like did the uh lock on his car and the, the lights on the car just lit enough to know that I was oh, I know where I am such a subtle way of illuminating it and I feel like that's where I'm at in life at the moment it's like I can't really see where I'm at, but there's enough of an indication that I'm I'm on the right path. And um yeah, that that's a call for humility and a call to to almost re-enchant the process. Um and I, I know we're we're running out of time, but just briefly to to I really like this is just personal as well from from reading your book, the the journey of Map of the Soul. Because it, it feels to me like a journey. It feels like the way that you've presented everything, there's a wholeness to it that I just enjoyed. Like I, I feel like it's really helped me refine my understanding of Young's work. But there was a moment where I felt myself mildly triggered by something you said around using the word enchantment and it, almost like enchantment being projection. And then when that projection's gone, enchantment dissolves and like I, that's a big part of my process has been this idea of enchantment and I was oh I was, I was really following this and now I feel a bit like is is that the case do do I agree with what Murray's writing here 
And then you brought it back in the last chapter in this kind of full circle back to almost as if the, the primitive way of viewing the relationship between the self and the cosmos, if you go all the way through our sophisticated rationality and the tools of science, you actually end up with that knowledge as well, but back in that primitive space of allowing oneself to accept what we we don't know and actually to to embrace you mentioned it as well of um synchronicity putting you in the Tao, actually harmonizing the self with the environment through receptivity through listening and and engaging um so i i, I just want to thank you for for the work that you're doing but also just for for the the experience i had like I, I read it over the weekend and i really was just immersed in it and um yeah really enjoyed it and really appreciate you taking the time as well i know you're very busy so it's it's been a delight talking to you well it's been very nice to meet you ricky and i i wish you all the best um i think you're on the journey i like that dream of yours uh, the light in the dark that's we're all stumbling around in the dark from time to yeah. time, but you yeah. have that companion with you. I think, uh, yeah. I, I didn't notice until I was talking it through of the phrase like to have an indication because the indicators were what lit the scene and I didn't yeah. clock that earlier. I was like, wait, no, yeah, it's giving me an indication of where I'm at. So it's another subtlety to that enigma. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mind That Ego podcast. To stay up to date, you can join the Mind That Ego mailing list if you head to mindthatego.com slash MFM. You'll also get a copy of my book, Mindsets for Mindfulness, when you join. You can also follow Mind That Ego on Facebook and YouTube, where the podcasts are also displayed in video format, along with other inspired videos that I create or if Instagram is more your social media of choice you can follow me at ricky underscore deriz that's d-e-r-i-s-z